0: Readers, listeners, welcome to the Foxed Page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the title at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford. I'm so excited today to dive into a book that I fell in love with when it very first came out in 2016, which is called Margaret the First by Danielle Dutton. I, um, I must admit, you guys all know this about me, I am not immune to the beauty of a book cover, and this one was one that sucked me right in. I picked it up on the table at Kepler's and uh, did my test, which is to read the first sentence, and found myself so engaged and so uh, anxious to get going on this book because the prose was unique. It was uh, historical in a way that I love because it wasn't too heavy-handed, and it was just, um, it absolutely drew me in from the jump. So Margaret I um, was written by a woman named Danielle Dutton. So Danielle Dutton's born in 1975 in Visalia, California and went to UC Santa Cruz for her undergrad where she studied history. She then got an MFA at the School of Art Institute in Chicago, which is a visual arts school, then went on to get a PhD at the University of Denver in English. I mentioned those aspects of her education because I think they're very important in terms of this slim book that came out of 10 years uh, of writing on her part. So you have um, a historical bent, certainly. Margaret the First is historical fiction, so you can see that from her undergrad days. Uh, But it's a very, very visual book. It's sort of this incredible accumulation of scenes. Those of you who are watching this on the YouTube channel can see that I am surrounded here by Flora. And that is no mistake, I went out in my garden just now and just went completely bananas with the hydrangeas and the anemones and whatever this house plant is here that is so beautiful, that's not from my garden, sadly. But the reason I um, really was leaning into the visuals here is because Margaret I is so pleasingly visual and because it has everything to do with gardens and flowers. That's a quick segue into the fact that uh, Daniel Dutton had said in a couple of interviews that she originally planned the book to be about a number of different people in their gardens in the 17th century. And that it, that 17th century garden design, which is very intricate and, and very meaningful and, and has all sorts of um, signs and symbols within it, that was very interesting to Dutton, and it was going to be set in the year 1666, where there was some sort of, a, um, she was it was going to be a murder, it was going to be sort of a mystery book, and she had these different people in their gardens, and Margaret was one of those people, and then Margaret ended up sort of eclipsing all of the other characters, and this became uh, really sort of distilled into this beautiful, brief volume here about Margaret the first, So... I mentioned that it is brief because it is in fact a novella so a novella is simply a short novel uh some people say it has to be under 140 pages but again i think that's like a very weird american need probably out of the enlightenment which we're about to discuss um, a need to define things and have things be very clearly defined but uh, this book is 160 pages and to me it is very clearly a novella it's 160 pages but there is a lot of white space on these pages i mean those of you again on the youtube you can see that there's there's a, lot of, there's a lot of space breaks, the font, like the lines are kind of far apart. I don't know what you call that. Um, but it's a book that you can read very quickly. And yet it is long enough to make you really feel like you have been transported into a different era and into a different time. And in fact, not only is it a historical fiction, novella but it transports us to all sorts of different places we begin in colchester england we move to oxford we move to paris we move to antwerp then we come back to london so and it covers a lot of territory and it covers the entire lifespan of margaret the first and yet you you have this very slim very sort of dreamy very flora focused book that is just an absolute delight So I wanna talk briefly about who Margaret I was. Uh, This is a historical fiction novel, but it also uh, is very clearly built upon the life of a woman named Margaret Cavendish. So she was born Margaret Lucas um, and was born to a wealthy family. Uh, I think her dad was like a Lord or a Baron or a Marquis, something like that. Um, And she grew up with a fair amount of privilege, but she also happened to grow up right during the time of the English civil wars. So the English Civil War or Civil Wars was from sort of 1640 to 1650-ish. It wasn't quite 10 years long. Um, I did not even know that England had a civil war. So it's also known as, it's known as the interregnum. So this is a period of time um, when the Stuarts had been, so like Elizabeth I, who was a Stuart, who came down from Scotland. Um, I am acting like I really know this history well, and I do not. So if I make mis- mistakes here, please forgive me. But these are, this is the rough... This is a rough and tumble kind of um, approach to history. So um, you had Queen Elizabeth I, so think of Elizabethan English, I mean England, so you know Shakespeare was at the end of Elizabethan English, wow England, and then we had uh, a couple of other Stuarts, and then the, the Parliamentarians kind of rose up and said, "No, we are against the royals." And Margaret was very much aligned with the royals, in part because her father was part of, you know, the 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 sort of gentry part of the royal uh, structure, because he was, you know, given his title by the king. But um, she, and then she goes on to marry uh, Mr. Cavendish, which I cannot remember his name. William, maybe. I love it that I don't know his name because he's really, I mean, he's very important and he's very supportive of Margaret and he's really actually in lots of ways just a delightful character, but he is entirely secondary to Margaret herself. Margaret's name I can remember. Mr. Cavendish, or Lord Cavendish, you know, not so much. So... Quick agenda for anyone um, who likes agendas and wants to know where we're headed. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit in the beginning about the title and about Dutton herself and about Margaret Cavendish and who she was. Then we're going to take a look at the opening pages, at the dedication and at the epigraph and at the, the. there's sort of two beginnings, I would argue, to the book. And we're going to take a fairly close look at those. Uh, then we're going to talk about history uh, and the, the the absolutely deft way that, uh that. Dutton interweaves history into this uh, really incredible prose that's light and engaging and so interesting. Uh, We're going to talk about the structure of the novella. We're then going to talk about depiction of maternity. We're going to talk about professional ambition. And then we're going to talk about the close of the novel. Margaret the First, I love the title. So the title Margaret the First is, it's beautiful because it's intimate in the idea that we have Margaret. And the first is very sort of, um, it makes her sound very royal. In fact, um, makes her sound like a queen. But she has this excellent part on page 121, which we are going to read, uh, which I think speaks volumes about her uh, professional ambition and her confidence and just who she is in uh, throughout the book in a way that's really beautiful. In a letter, um, it, she's describing herself. As ambitious as any of my sex was, is, or can be, which makes that though I cannot be Henry V or Charles Second, yet I endeavor to be Margaret I. So I love this because she is absolutely aligning herself with these royal leaders, and in fact not even with their queen consorts. And she's not um. In fact, she's not even aligning herself with Queen Elizabeth or, well, I guess Queen Anne comes later. I think Queen Anne is the beginning of the 1700s. But she's aligning herself, in fact, with men in a way that speaks to her her ambition. So she was not a queen, but what she was is uh, sort of the first woman to live by her pen. That is one way that she is described. So um, she is someone who made a living writing, which was very difficult to do, um, well, I mean, did she make a living writing? She made a, a very important reputation for herself. She actually had quite a bit of money, and I don't know how much... I it, there's not a lot about the commercialization of her work, but there is a lot about the publication and the circulation of her work. She actually wrote so many different things. She began with something called Poems and Fancies, which was sort of a, um, you know, something that she had learned when she was in court. She was part of the court in Oxford and part of the court in Paris. She lived in the Louvre. You know, she had this incredibly adventuresome life mostly um well a huge chunk of it was an exile because during that civil war when the parliamentarians rose up a lot of the royalists fled um and in fact a lot of her her family was was slaughtered at that time so We have this woman, Margaret, who from the beginning of the book is a writer. She sees herself as a writer. She's kind of writing her way into the world. She's also someone who has lots and lots of fantasies and lots of um, sort of whimsical things that are happening in her head and all of that Makes itself, um, you know, in it, it makes its way into her writing. Whether it's um, her early work, which is her poems and fancies, uh, which is kind of more what you might expect of a of of a royal lady uh, of that time. After poems and fancies, she begins to make her way with the rest of the men in England toward a lot of Enlightenment thinking. So, the Enlightenment... Um, this is a very interesting point about uh, Margaret I, and it's one that I want to spend a bit of time on. So. If you are like me, I'm 54, just turned 54. Um, if you're like me, you learned about the Enlightenment as this very important time of um, you know, uh, of reason and of science. And science, we got all these answers to things, and we were able to understand the world better. And we had all of these important um people who sort of synthesized some learnings from the classical um, you know, from the Greeks and Romans and whatnot. But a lot of it was sort of new thinking and. We had a lot of emphasis on, uh, you know, microscopes and telescopes and the scientific method. And so science was really sort of being separated from magic and was really coming into uh, its own. Recently, I have begun to realize, though, that the Enlightenment was really problematic in many ways. So one thing that the Enlightenment did was it really made, you know, man, and I, I mean man there, not woman, put man at the center of of sort of everything. Man became um, like absolutely central. When they were doing scientific experiments during this era, there was a thought that, you know, animals can't feel pain and that animals, uh, you know, don't have any like real means of thinking. And everything um, from the natural world to weather, to animals, to um, plants, you know, all of that was sort of depreciated and man was really raised up and then of everything else is being hierarchied That is not a term, but everything else is being put into hierarchies. So there, you know, there's this big emphasis on taxonomy and, you know, you have Darwin who's thinking about the survival of the fittest and um, a lot of really um, sort of thinkers that we revere even today, but who were planting some problematic seeds that grew into things like racism and classism and elitism. And, uh, you know, I'm my my own pet theory is that a lot of American exceptionalism and a lot of emphasis on the in individual grew out of this kind of um, this sense that man was superior and that our ability to think and our ability to do abstract you know, problem solving and science and whatnot. Um, All of that made us feel far superior to to everything else in the world, both natural forces and animals and, uh, you know, all, all things. And never did I think that it would be a volume like this, a slim, delightful historical fiction volume that would really lead me to think more about the Enlightenment. Margaret herself is very much a product of the Enlightenment and does a lot of sort of Enlightenment thinking, but there is also a pretty strong condemnation of the Enlightenment. Partially, uh, Margaret is always thinking that in fact, like these poodles who are being, you know, like slaughtered in front of them in, in sort of the name of science, that they can in fact feel pain or that when certain birds are being deprived of oxygen to prove that oxygen you know is important that in fact that swallow the bird under the glass dome uh, is in fact suffering so you have some sense of her as as bridling a bit at some of the Enlightenment thinking, and you also, on the part of Dutton, have this really skilled portrayal of a lot of the medical interventions um, that were happening to Margaret herself and to other people, and and how barbaric a lot of them were. You know, things like leeches on hemorrhoids and some sort of terrible salve that you put all over your legs that would open sores, and you know, then the humors would come out because the sores would um, open and weep and ooze, and you know, terribly pain. Uh, remedies because, um, well, I, I'll just go ahead and say this now. Margaret was unable to have children and there was a lot of pressure on her, even though her husband had two sons from a former marriage uh, and actually a couple of daughters. The, the daughters are not as important. So, you know, they went ahead and did what you did, which is smear the excrement of a ram all over her abdomen, you know, things like that. So, um, there, there's kind of a, uh, you know, a subtle but very sort of vivid and memorable critique of the Enlightenment by Dutton, just in, in the um, descriptions of these kinds of remedies that were offered to Margaret. But also you have Margaret really questioning some of the Enlightenment thinking, which I think was very helpful for me as I was thinking about uh, some of these Enlightenment issues. Honestly, it's worth reading the book just to be thinking about science. And I'm not a scientist at all. I got a C plus in chemistry, Uh at Castileia when I was a junior in high school. I mean, wow, these days, oh boy, that would have been really, really bad. I also got a C plus in French, which is ironic because I went on to get a PhD um, in romance literature, which includes French literature. Um, So, you know. There's there, all of us, all of us have to start somewhere. And apparently I was starting with a C plus, but I want to get back to the actual text itself. Um, you know, uh, my best advice for anyone who is here in order to sort of, uh, lean, learn to read better. My main advice is simply to pay attention. And the best way to do that is to just slow down and take a look at what you're reading. And the first thing you need to take a look at is the title. Which we just did. This idea of Margaret the First is just this excellent um combination of her ambition and her uh you know her her sense of herself as being unique. There's a lot of emphasis on her, as wishing she would be a meteor and not you know just a simple star in the sky. Like she's really interested in uh, leaving a legacy, but she's also interested in in being being unusual and being unique. So Margaret the First, I think, is an excellent excellent title. And then we have this gorgeous portrayal of her. So um Dutton has spoken about the fact that uh, she was hesitant to have an image of Margaret F- the First or Margaret Cavendish on the cover of the book. And I absolutely understand that because I think the minute you put uh, an image of the person, you're kind of hijacking the reader's ability to imagine that same person. And there's something dreamy enough and kind of um, like, it's not generic exactly. Uh, And we do know that this is Margaret because actually the publisher commissioned this beautiful uh, portrait of her. And she did have these very beautiful large eyes, but uh, other than the large eyes, you know, she she's sort of um, you know she's it's not a very specific specific uh, vision of this young woman. It's kind of soft and, and and really very beautiful. It's um you know when you start thinking about us- using an actual portrait or image the questions become you know what era of her life do you have her as an older woman when she was doing most of her writing do you have her as a younger person all of these different questions come into play do you write her you know as a as a um, you know a woman who is dressing in kind of these flamboyant ways that she liked or do you have her in a portrait that's more sort of um, you know a formal affair? So they commissioned this beautiful image in the front, and I really, I just think it's absolutely captivating. I also love the, uh, all of this flora here and, and these feathers that are up top on on her head here uh, together with these, what looked to me like begonia leaves. And you have this kind of, um, th- th- it's like kind of a wild type of, if you look more closely at these flowers and at the petals, they, they don't look exactly tropical, but they're kind of meaty and kind of interesting in, uh, in a way that is really, really an introduction to the unique and interesting way that Daniel Dutton uh, is going to include detail. So a lot of the detail it is very surprising in the book. She's not just talking about hydrangeas, you know, which is what I've got here surrounding myself and anemones. She's talking about these very unusual flowers and unusual uh, plants and unusual moths and butterflies and whatnot in a way that really makes you feel uh, very present. Even if you can't quite picture the word, you can't quite picture the flower the name is so evocative and, and so interesting and kind of haunting that I think it's actually more effective uh, than, and you know, she's sprinkling these in with more identifiable flora, but it's really, uh, I love I love the way that this cover, um, we also have the stars on the face and some little stars that are kind of all around her. There's a magical kind of drifty, whimsical feel here uh, that that's really grounded beautifully by this very dark background. Okay. So... Then we're going to dive into the book. We talked about the title. Uh, we talked about the dedication dedicated to Dutton's son. His name is Elijah. She is married to someone named Martin, I think. And together, uh, the two of them actually have a publishing house that focuses mainly on women's writing, which is awesome. Dutton does not believe in like women's writing as like a category and doesn't believe that there's such a thing as like feminine writing or writing for women, but she really liked the idea of giving women, um, you know, a, a chance to submit to a place where they, uh, maybe felt a little bit more like their chances of being published were higher. Okay. Um, and then we have this, uh, this epigraph at the beginning of the book. Art itself is for the most part irregular. So this is a phrase from Margaret Cavendish. I have to say I love an epigraph, and this one, it left me just like a tiny bit cold. Like, I just was kind of like, huh, okay. I mean, it's interesting. I'm not sure that it becomes sort of a guiding principle for the whole entire uh, work, which is, I I like that. I like when the epigraph can sort of be, you know, be sort of suffusing everything that comes after. I will say that Margaret herself is irregular. Irregular in the sense that she is not afraid to, um, you know, bust out her own fashions. At one point, she goes to the opera. In fact, it's it's a play that her husband is going to put on, and she goes in this kind of Amazon dress that is, in fact, bearing her breasts. So she's going with bared breasts to the opera. And At one point, she's wearing these black stars on her face. Um, you know, she's, just, she's not afraid to take a lot of uh, fashion risks. So this idea of irregularity in art um, it is actually very germane and it can be seen to sort of color the whole thing, but it wasn't quite as much of a, um, an epigraph as I, I like to dig into. So now we get to uh, the shape of the novel. So the shape of the novel is very important. We have a prologue and then we have um, a, a couple of sections that are told from the first person. And then we have a shift that moves us toward the third person. Then we have a shift to the third person that we have in sort of the last one third of the novella. And then we have an epilogue. So this prologue is in the third person I don't, I think I mentioned that. Um, And I wanna look at this very first, we're gonna dive into the prose. I wanna look at the very first uh, sentence here of our prologue. The woman had eight children. The first called Tom in 1603, the final year of Queen Elizabeth's reign. It was five daughters and three sons and she dressed them richly, but simply and cleanly to ward off sharkly habits. I love this opening. So it's it's beginning with the idea of the woman. So this is not Margaret. This is, in fact, Margaret's mother. And Margaret's mother, it turns out, was a... You don't find this out in the book, but you find out that she was very beautiful, and you don't know a lot beyond that. But it turns out she was a very skilled negotiator and that she raised these children by herself and she was very good at sort of wheeling and dealing where land was concerned and at running her household. So I love the idea of Margaret uh, who left home at about 16 to go join the court at Oxford, that Margaret was very, um, you know, she had a role model in her mother who was very formative in terms of feeling independent and competent and, and strong as a woman without necessarily having a man. A little bit further down, we're now talking about Margaret. Her girlhood heroes were Shakespeare, Ovid, Caesar. She wrote them in beside Thinking Rocks and Humming Shoes and her favorite sister, Catherine, who starred in all but five of her books. So, um, this is, it's so this is such a strong beginning because not only do you have uh, the first reference to Queen Elizabeth, which is a very large reference. I mean, Queen Elizabeth was a hugely imposing and hugely successful, um, you know, in many ways, successful ruler in England, someone who did not marry, did not have children, you know, really someone who was very strong. And then the next people that we are naming, you know who are large historical figures are Shakespeare and Ovid and Caesar. So I love this idea right from the start of introducing Margaret as the youngest of this, of all the children in her family, really a very young girl, but aligning her right away with these enormous, um, you know, luminaries from this era. Elizabeth I, Shakespeare, Ovid, Caesar, you know, we're even going back into classical times when we're really sort of the root of a lot of Western uh, thinking. So we have this, she's kept, she's in very good company here, which I really love from the start, but we also have her, um, you know, she's incorporating Shakespeare and Caesar and Ovid into thinking rocks and humming shoes so already we're seeing a little bit of a breakdown of this enlightenment thinking it's not that rocks are inert in fact rocks can think um, and her shoes can hum and there's this uh, emphasis on all of her sor- sartorial stuff at the beginning all of her all of her clothing and her shoes and this emphasis on on aesthetics and looking a certain way and the importance of of beauty uh, and, of, and of taking the time to admire natural beauty and also to sort of adorn yourself We're gonna um, move on to uh, the next part, which it's funny, I feel like the book almost has a uh, sort of a a second beginning because we have this beginning part where um, we're introduced to the idea of Margaret and importantly, at the end of that section, Samuel Pepys, who was a very important thinker at the time, he um, and he, at this point he was, you know, the, the one of the presidents of the Royal Society, which was a big science group who met like a kind of a salon of scientists, and uh, the end of that first part, in fact, shows us shows Samuel Pepys waiting to spy Margaret because she was such a sensation. So you have this idea of Margaret as being, um, as a child of being very bright and sort of worldly, and then as an adult being sort of sought after by men who are important like Samuel Pepys. So we have this kind of whole span of her life in that very, you know, that sort of two page prologue. And then we are uh, in this section that begins on page uh, seven here, It's called Colchester to Oxford, 1623 to 1644. We now have Margaret beginning to tell the story in her first-person voice. Leaving London, the busy road before us morphs to gorse and broom, sheep in grass, cottagers spinning and weaving, till Colchester looms at last, its Norman castle high above the crumbling Roman wall and houses scattered down to the River Colne, the port of the height, the town a full mile side to side. So I love this. It is um, we know it is a first person narrator because she says "us." So uh, the 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 busy road before us, and but it's this really deft and really sort of flexible first-person narrator who you have a sense that the cameras pulled way way back we're looking at um, you know we're looking at a road we're looking at uh, the grasses around we're looking at the plants we're looking at sheep so you you have this kind of anonymous sense of arriving into Colchester which is in fact the place where she was born so it almost feels like an omniscient narrator but she has tipped us off with that little us at the beginning the road before for us. Um, it's it sort of she's aligning herself with the reader and the reader feels a bit of that intimacy but we also have this real sense of kind of entering um, as if we don't know what's going on in a very sort of omniscient way and we are moving closer and closer on this busy road toward Colchester which in the beginning is our destination. Okay, Colchester, first Camulos, then Camulodenum. Some even say it was Camelot was famous for its erringos, roots of sea holly dug up like fingers and candied pink or red. Then, just outside the walls, the Lucas estate, St. John's Green, once the Abbey of St. John the Baptist. My great-grandfather bought it in 1548 for 132 pounds. Dovecoats, farmland, a kitchen garden, cows. So, this is such a beautiful introduction. We've got um this, this folding in of um, you know this landscape that is around us that's really, again, focus on the flora, which really allows us to sort of see what is around. Even if we don't know what gorse looks like, it's just such an interesting word. Um, gorse and broom, sheep in grass. It reads very much, in fact, like a poem. And then we have this succession of names. Now it's Colchester, but in the beginning, It was Camulos. Then it was Camulodinum, presumably when the Romans were there because that's a Latin word. Um, And then it was Camelot. So in the beginning, it would have been a Norman town and then it would have, from the Norman invasion. And then you would have had now uh, in 15... 48 so you know before certainly before the enlightenment and kind of at the very beginning of queen elizabeth's reign and then we have her family kind of sliding in the same way that we saw margaret together with shakespeare and ovid and caesar in the beginning we have john the baptist and then it says john the baptist comma My great-grandfather bought it in 1548 for 132 pounds. I love um, the inclusion of the money there. Presumably that was like nothing. But this idea of St. John the Baptist my great-grandfather, it makes it sound like she is, in fact, you know, the great-granddaughter of John the Baptist, which is not, in fact, the case. John the Baptist was one of the apostles, one of the disciples of of Jesus. So you you have, again, this really beautiful melding that we will see again and again in this really interesting and gorgeous way uh, between Margaret's family, or Margaret herself, and these incredible uh, figures from history you also it's 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 a book where it, she's not too concerned you know there's some dates here we've got 1623 to 1644 and we know that her family bought the place in 1548 but we're not talking about you know, big important uh, battle years and we're not talking about very specific things that everybody needs to sort of try to remember. You have this idea that, that the history is very personal, the history that you need to know will be provided to you and that that history is going to be related in very important ways to Margaret. This is not just sort of random history, it's all going to be in fact very germane to our, to our story. I also love this example here right from the beginning um it was that that um, that Colchester was famous for its erringos I don't even know if that's how you say it um roots of sea holly dug up like fingers and candied pink or red so erring goats to me sounds like some sort of like rhizome it sounds like some sort of science thing but these are these are the roots of sea holly which again i don't know what that looks like i imagine um i you know you can sort of imagine the holly plant and some sort of ice that ice plant that we have here in california i have no idea what this stuff looks like but erring goes and um, these candied things that are bright pink and look like fingers, there's something, you know, kind of eerie and, and a little crazy and absolutely unique and interesting uh, that she is doing with this flora here that is, that is just absolutely captivating to me. I love how it feels foreign enough that we are definitely, you know, in a different time and in a different era and in a different place. And yet we have a sense just from candied fingers and the pink and the red of of what these things might look like. I don't think I want to eat one. I don't want to eat something that looks like a finger and that came from sea holly, the roots of sea holly, Uh, but absolutely beautiful, beautiful prose. I want to um, pick out a few places I, where I just think we're, we're always going to be taking a look at the prose as we move forward from these first pages, but I want to take a close look at the beautiful way uh, in which she is incorporating history. And I really, um, I'm not, I don't feel like I need to be learning a lot while I'm reading, but if I am learning or if I'm sort of being reminded of history or if I'm getting a slightly different perspective on history, I know that is always a huge bonus. We're gonna go back to page four and take a look at um, this Samuel Pepys. So he is, again, he's someone we see at the very beginning of the book. And I love this, we see him also at the very end. So um, he's a very important thinker. He was one of the heads of the Royal Society, as I mentioned. Um, So it's it's actually, this is a very flattering way to introduce us. And it sort of assures us that in fact, Margaret is going to have a lot of difficulties, but she is going to have some success. So right at the beginning, end of our prologue we get this when grown she would adorn herself like a peacock or so wrote the diarist samuel peeps whose curiosity brought him out one day to stand along a london road and wait for her carriage to pass so then um he's going to go on and talk and he was his diary was extremely important and has been a very very um sort of a touchstone for people looking people wanting to look back and find out what was up in the 17th century in the 1600s so um the fact that she was such a, you know she was she was a part of his diary is extremely important so this is more um what he wrote about her and it's just such a delicious way for us to to put margaret into a historical context she was all that anyone talked about as watched for as queen catherine herself but a far more thrilling spectacle Those black stars on her cheeks, the scandal at the theater, her hats. One anonymous satirist dubbed her Welbeck Abbey's illustrious whore. Others called her simply fantastical, an overgrown, spoilt girl. Her work, chaos. Her books, sad heaps of rubbish. Voluminous, some called her, crack-brained, so extremely picturesque. Yet there were others, Pepys knew, who considered her the unequaled daughter of the muses and her latest book, A Blazing Utopia to Rival Bacon's Own. So again, this is right at the end of the prologue, but we have this sense of her importance. And it's it's interesting the way that Dutton, I mean, there's lots of fragments here, there's lots of kind of shorthand, there's lots of contradiction. She's not trying to answer um, a, a, you know, a, a certain question, Dutton isn't, and she's not trying to sort of give us one version. In fact she's trying to capture uh you know all of the different facets of this incredible woman so we have this important note by Samuel Pepys and and his um his thinking that her work is as important as Bacon's is Francis Bacon that is um is just an extremely extremely uh high praise coming from this very important historian okay we're going to move on to page 22 and 23. This is always so fun for me because I never can remember obviously where we're going next, so um, I get to treat myself to the prose over and over. Okay, so um, at the end of 22 and 23, this is when she is joined. She has left at 16, um, wants to experience the world and decides that she would like to go be at the court at Oxford. Her sisters all think this is crazy because she is a very quiet person. She's very sort of solitary. Dutton herself has talked about how she really, um, she realized, you know, after writing her sort of fourth short book that, uh, that she always writes about people in isolation, which I think is so interesting. I have read nothing else by Dutton, but it is very hard to write about people in isolation. And in fact, we do have a lot of Margaret by herself. And a sense of her as being someone who is very uh, happy being by herself. She seems very introverted. She seems very, uh, you know, she has a very rich inner life that really feeds her in in almost every way she needs. She also has a delightful marriage um, with Mr. Cavendish, whose name I still can't remember. Um, But she starts um, in the court at Oxford and uh, immediately begins to think it is not a good idea for her to be in the court of the Queen. So this is on page 22. Then around a corner and I stood before the queen, the queen, stunning and Catholic and dressed in red and ermine. This is Queen Henrietta. She is married to King Charles the I. I had to look that up. I did not know that. And in fact, one of the beautiful things is that you don't need to know this. I mean, everything that you need to know about this book is supplied by Dutton. And, you know, all you need to know is that she's this this fabulous queen. What's important here is that Margaret is, is sort of stunned to be in her presence. Um, so she's aligning herself a bit with the Royalists at the beginning, which is important because war is about to break out against the Royalists. And also the fact that she is, I mean, this idea of red and ermine, it's that kind of archetypal, that long red gown with the black um, spotted white collar. Uh, I said that in such a weird way, the white collar with the black kind of dots in it. It's like the the archetypal kind of regal outfit. And in this book, you know, clothing is very important. And so to, to have that kind of elegance and have her be impressed by it is important at this point. So then uh, we have this beautiful idea of what is happening at court. I found myself in an unknown universe, whirling far into space. African servants, dogs in hats, platonic ideals, sparkling conversation and ivy-coated quadrangles with womanizing captains, dueling earls, actors." So again, we have this fragmented prose. We have this very impressionistic thing. I mean, she could have written, you know, a hundred pages about what life was like in Oxford at the court. Instead, we have this incredibly concise but incredibly evocative uh, depiction of what that felt like, and um, and it's very Margaret Cavendish. So she a lot of her writing, and we get bits and pieces of her writing throughout. Oh, which is very important. So. I should have said this earlier, but Daniel Dutton came to Margaret Cavendish through the writing of Virginia Woolf. So Virginia Woolf in the Common Reader has a, a chapter that is devoted entirely to Margaret Cavendish, and in lots of ways she's a role model. Um, Woolf is also a little bit critical of her in some ways, uh, but is is very um, it, it, Dutton was very intrigued by the fact that Virginia Woolf was was so uh, impressed by this woman in many ways who was publishing so widely and with so much kind of critical acclaim you know what a century two centuries three three centuries before Wolf herself is writing. So we have um, Margaret Cavendish's writing in the you know, middle 1630s and 40s, and then we have Virginia Woolf 300 years later. And so what Dutton does that is so skilled is she is incorporating some of Woolf's writing and some of, um, of uh, Margaret Cavendish's own writing, and then of course lots of Dutton's own writing. So this structuring here, I found myself in an unknown universe whirling far into space colon. So this idea of being out in space and, and sort of being preoccupied with the idea of the cosmos and, and what is out there in the world, that's kind of this enlightenment feel. And then we have this this sort of list of these beautiful things, everything from dogs in hats, which is you know, quite playful to things like platonic ideals. So we're, she's kind of nodding, um, she's sort of signposting for us that there's gonna be some frivolity in her life, but there is also going to be you know, some question about platonic ideals. So those of course coming from Plato, so from you know, classical thinkers. It's, it's, a, it's just the most incredible way, in my opinion, of folding us into this really beautiful moment in history. And then a little further at the end of this first section, Margaret decides that um, she does not in fact want to be at the court at Oxford and she's not sort of um, bubbly enough and that this is not the place for her, writes to her mother and says, It is a mistake and not where I belong. Mother as promptly refused. Bad as I thought I had it, life outside was swiftly unraveling for those still loyal to the king. Be tranquil, her note advised. The war will soon be over. But the following spring, it was not. So again, I did not know um, even that there was an English Civil War. I think I'd heard of interregnum, but honestly, I think I know the word interregnum from Game of Thrones. But, so you have um, this, this period of time in England known as the Civil Wars in the middle of the 17th century. I had, if I know about that, or if I ever had learned, I had forgotten. It doesn't matter. What's beautiful here is this kind of exchange. We know that these women are aligned with the Royalists. We know that they're very loyal to the King and Queen. And now we know that life outside for royalists outside of court has gotten really dicey. And in fact, there's all sorts of atrocity that happens uh, to Margaret's family. And again, in this very slim volume, we have some pretty traumatic stuff happening, mostly with the parliamentarians defiling the corpses of Margaret's family. there's like incredible description of like arms being flung onto lawns and you know all of the you know earrings being taken from ears that kind of thing that's harrowing but we have it in this kind of unique um staccato kind of list like prose that gives such strong impressions in a way that is very efficient uh, and, and very sort of dreamy and 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 really just incredible okay Our next look at history is on page 25. There's a lot of history in kind of the first half of the book, and again, not not too much history. Like, you don't need to have a lot of history. Um, You you need to have no history to understand it, but it also doesn't feel like, um, you know, you have to be following along carefully. All you need to know is there's a war and that Margaret is kind of with the Royalists and they're against the parliamentarians. Okay, in the section called The Channel to Paris, 18, sorry, 1644 to 1645, we know that um, Margaret and the court are in exile. They're leaving England because it is not safe for the king to be there. To begin came an attack by parliamentarian ships, the vice Admiral Warwick and Paramore, just off the coast of Devon. Cannons fantastically loud. Then French ships sailed out to meet us and the parliamentarians quickly fled. So you have this idea of like crazy war happening, you know, I mean, they're being attacked, she's under cannon fire and the parliamentarians are attacking them and then the French come out and save them. So there's a lot of war happening, but she's not, it's not a long description. It's not um, a big historical intrigue about who was right and who was wrong. It's very kind of broadly sketched. And on some level you have a sense that this is all that she would have known. Margaret knew that it wasn't safe to be a Royalist outside, you know, with the court. And they knew that the court needed to flee, and they were being attacked, and the French came and saved them. So it's this beautiful aligning of the reader together with Margaret. You're not given too much history. It's not in detail, but it's just enough. Um, you know, that, that one fragment, which is so beautiful. Canons, fantastically loud! exclamation mark. I mean, it's just beautifully done, and it captures that whole notion of the fear and, and the kind of fragmentary sense that she would have had uh, about what is going on around her. Okay, now we're going to go on to pages 81, 2, and 3, really jumping ahead in history. Um, and this tells you, I mean, again, by page 81, the, you know, we're, things are sort of um, heading toward the Restoration, which is when Charles II comes back to um, England and, and sort of puts the Stuart family back on the throne. Um, but we have uh, you know, this sort of climax uh, on page 81. It's been 60 pages since she was in the English court uh, with the, the king and queen there, and then they fled in exile to France. And then now she is in Antwerp with her husband, and they are going to host the uh, King Charles II. So this is before he has gone back for the restoration. And she's reflecting upon the fact that she is, um, she's much matured and she's a married woman now and she runs her own household and she's really become quite independent and, and has been through some gnarly atrocities and hasn't been able to bear children. So she's reflecting on uh, the difference between where she is now and where she began in this beautiful way that incorporates a lot of history. Back then, I'd been but a maid and awkward and shy. Whereas tonight, I was a marchioness and seated beside the king. Did you know, he leaned in closer, you are something of a celebrity. Oh my gosh, wow. Those of you who are on the YouTube channel can see this one dog who always comes and visits me. She's the one who looks so old, but she's not old. Okay, girl, go. You are something of a celebrity in London. In truth, I'd heard as much. Still, I blushed as pink as the ham." I mean, this is a woman who is being told by the King of England that she is a celebrity in London. So this is someone who has certainly arrived and she's arrived because of her intellectual prowess and because her writing is so excellent. It's so so strong. So again, this weaving together of history and of what we are supposed to take away about Margaret is so deft. A little further down, "'At two in the morning, "'we toasted the Commonwealth's downfall. And seven months later, by God's blessing, Cromwell was dead. So, you know, seven months later, Cromwell, who is the head of the parliamentarians, he is dead and the king is going to be able to return to London for what becomes the restoration. Okay, so then right across on page uh, 83, Cromwell was dead. I was at my desk. So you have this, I love this. So you have a, a very short kind of mini paragraph and then you have these two sentences back to back with they're each a, an entire paragraph unto themselves Cromwell was dead I was at my desk so it's again this incredible fusing together of history that I think we all know the name Cromwell although this is Oliver Cromwell I'm not sure I think there was a Cromwell also oh, that's Thomas Cromwell maybe with the Tudors because I read all of those Hilary and Mantel books wow are those good um we're gonna have to dip into those but that that's a big dip because those books are long, far from a novella. Um, they're the opposite of a novella. But um, that was Thomas Cromwell, I think. And this here is Oliver Cromwell. So he was beheaded, actually, uh, by the royalists. Which, it's such an interesting thing to be reading this book and to be somewhat aligned with the royalists. Because my sympathies are always with, um, you know, with the people, with the proletariat. But it's um, it's also hard to not be somewhat seduced by Margaret. And, frankly, a little bit by Marie Antoinette. A little I mean, I'm just going to say it. Oh, my God. I am, it turns out, part of Marie Antoinette's maternal haplog group, which I found out on 23andMe, and I thought that was so cool. I know I shouldn't like the idea of being related to her because she was an awful person in lots of ways, um, but it also turns out that one in 500 people are like that. We are all part of her maternal haplog group, so uh, it turns out I'm not not that special, not that related to Marie Antoinette. Okay. But this idea of Cromwell is dead, and I was at my desk. It's it's as if, um, you know, as if there's some sort of causal relationship there. You know, it's like the, the, these important things are happening in the world. The English monarchy is going to return to the throne. The shape of England is going to be changed forever. And she is at her desk, and they are of equal weight. So it this this ability of Dutton to to just meld the the personal and the historical is just excellent. So good wrap up this idea of history, it's important to sort of, as we're reading, to, you know, pull on a certain thread of the fabric and, and and sort of take a look at one aspect of the novel, but then it's very important to say, so what? You know, why why is it important? And I've, I've talked about sort of the deftness with which uh, Dutton is, is weaving together the historical and the personal, but the so what of it is that, you know, it's really raising Margaret up in a way that is incredibly uh, potent, and it's subtle in a way. It's not sort of, like, trying to, like, toot Margaret's horn. It's like it's this this sense of like her as being, you know, seated next to the King of England. It's it's a, it's a very important way of elevating her and it's sort of a shorthand. It allows in a mere 160 pages to have a real sense of the magnitude of her celebrity. Okay, we're going to move on from the idea of history to the idea of structure. So, This book is chronological, which is, um, you know, chronology is your friend. Any of you who are writers out there and who are interested in experimental fiction, um, don't forget that writing things in chronological order is very soothing to the reader. It's very pleasing. It's very effective. And it allows your reader to pay a lot of attention to different things if the reader is not sort of jumping around uh, all the time in terms of time. So it is a book that is chronological. It does make some jumps. We just saw one. You know, seven months later, Cromwell was dead. Um, but we, but but generally speaking, you know, there are dates, and we are moving in a chronological order from Margaret's birth all the way uh, through her maturity. So it is 50 years, which is impressive. We're spanning 50 years over 160 pages. and it feels, again, it feels very rich. It feels like we have a very good sense of what her life is like when she's in Antwerp and she's living in the, the house of um, Rubens, you know one of the great masters. And we have a sense of what life was like at Oxford from that incredible, brief um, you know staccato paragraph. It's important to note that um, Dutton did write this book over the course of 10 years. And one of the things that happened is she began with uh, the part that follows after the restoration. So we have this third person narrator who is in the uh, prologue and the epilogue. And then at about page 90, we have a shift. So the first 90-ish pages, except for the prologue, are in the first person. They are told from Margaret's point of view. I did this, I did that, but the road before us, all of that is first person. But on page 90, we have a very important shift, uh, and we move to the third person. Interestingly, I have heard from readers who were listening to this book on um, Audible. A lot of people really love the Audible narrator because she is um, British, and I I liked her. I I, I found the voice, um, it's like a little tiny bit high. So it made me feel like it was a little fussier. Like I I sort of imagined um, our narrator, our Margaret narrator would have like a little more sort of lower commanding voice, Uh, but it's really, really well done. But people said that after I haven't listened to the entire thing, I've only listened to the first, you know, sort of half. But after page 90, some people were saying that they felt a real shift in terms of the verbal, the like vocal narrator. And I, I wonder if part of that is because it is in the third person. Um, and I think she, the vocal narrator, starts doing the different people's voices. And, and it is interesting because one of the things that happens when we have that tense shift is that Margaret, the, the sort of vision that we have of Margaret, because we are distanced from her by dint of this third-person narrator, um, it's sort of like a gap opens and we feel a little bit further from her. She actually ends up feeling like a tiny bit whiny and a little bit attention-seeking in ways that she does not in the beginning of the novel. I have a theory about this, which is that Dutton has said in interviews uh, that she began with this section first. So she wrote the book over the course of 10 years and starting on 91, um, that is the very first part that she wrote so part of my sense is that in the beginning uh, Margaret who was one of many people in their gardens in the you know early 1600s that, that she um, was a little distanced from Dutton. Dutton Dutton didn't know her quite as well she had not yet eclipsed everyone else who was in their gardens but we have this sense of her as as being um, somebody that, that that is slightly less sympathetic and part of that is because I think Dutton, you know, kind of my fantasy is that Dutton got to know her more and more and she came more to life and 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 became in the process more sympathetic. So when we move back to this very first vision of Dutton's, of Margaret... We have a little more distance, on she's just a little whinier and a little bit more, um, you know, sort of attention-seeking and not quite insecure, but sort of pushy in a way um, that, that sounds fine. I mean, it's good for an artist to be pushy, but it also ends up feeling not quite as sympathetic as the first, uh, the first 90 pages of the book. So on page 91, we have this. It came as a shock after a brutal crossing in which she hit her head in a storm and swore she'd seen a bear at the helm of the ship. Margaret expected to find her husband at his London residence, Newcastle House, in fashionable Clerkenwell. Yet there she stood in Bow Street in a rented house again. I cannot call it unhandsome, she said, when asked if she liked her new room. Where was she meant to keep her gowns? It hadn't even a mirror. William's steward came to tell her that her crates could not be found. So I guess his name is William. I think I said that before. I think I guessed that it was William. Good guess. Good guess. Um, That's also literally the name of my husband and my eldest son. But, you know. Who's who's counting? Um, But we have this idea here of her as, you know, kind of whining and being like uh, let down by the room, which is, you know, she's seeming a little snobby in a way that she has not really seemed until now, even though she's, you know, like this fancy like lady and marchioness or however you say that. So um, and this idea of like, where was she meant to keep her gowns? It hadn't even a mirror. I mean, her gowns are very important to her and her physical appearance was very important to her as almost an artistic expression. So both of those make Sense, but there is something slightly whiny about this. Um, but then we come to the real crisis, which is that her crates could not be found. So we we have these kind of visions of her um, as as being slightly more you know demanding or snobby or whatever it is. Uh, and then we are reminded, in fact, that she is this real kind of critical heavyweight, meaning critical writer heavyweight. Um, that's that's really I think a very good balance to some of this kind of whininess. So again, it's good to ask the question, so what? You know, so there's a structure where we have first person and third person uh, and we have a prologue and an epilogue. And then we have these chunks that are sort of set apart by uh, the places that she was going and the years where she was, um, you know, in these different places. So it's important to say, so what? Like, why does any of that matter? I think it's actually very important that we do have these places and these years marked because it allows us to span 50 years of her life she, she lived for 50 years and so much happens. You know, she's in exile in France and then she's in Belgium and then she's back in England and there's an entire civil war and she writes all of these books and the Royal Society is established and she goes to the plays and, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot is happening in the course of 160 pages. And part of the reason why I think we are allowed such a rich and such a kind of thorough, uh, you know, depiction of all of these different places is the fact that we have this... This chronological structure that's really pretty straightforward, and we have these very important signposts where um, you know it'll say Colchester to, to London and, and give us the, the the years. So there's there's a, um, a a shorthand way that she's building a scaffolding, and it's a somewhat unique structure. There's lots of jumps in time, but they're handled very deftly by this kind of shorthand, which is very efficient, and then allows for a lot of sort of flowery kind of ornate slightly orthogonal kind of descriptions of things, you know, like describing things not, not by themselves, but describing the court with these dogs with hats and, um, you know, uh, uh, platonic ideals. Wow, that I really had to work to remember that. But, you know, it allows for this kind of staccato thing and, and for some sort of sketchy descriptions of things because, in fact, we have this excellent scaffolding on which to structure the novel. Okay, I wanna move on to depictions of maternity. It's interesting to me at the very, very beginning in the prologue, remember, we have the woman had eight children. So this idea of beginning with a woman who is um, a mother is very significant. So we're, we're, we're beginning with the woman, which is perfectly, like that makes so much sense to me because this is a book that is very much about the strength and independence of women. Uh, but, but the idea of the woman as a mother Kicking us off here with a mother is—I um, think it sort of—it asks us to focus on maternity, at least to a certain degree. And um, you know, we we don't know this necessarily from the book, although you get a sense of it a little bit. Um, her mother, you know, to survive all of those gnarly things that were happening during the Civil War and the loss of children, and um, you know, to maintain her her households and her wheeling dealing and land and whatnot. This is a very strong mother indeed. But we also know that margaret herself wanted to be a mother and that um it did not uh she was not able to have children of course we have no idea her husband was 20 years older than william now i know his name um william was 20 years older than she was so who knows you know what was happening so we're going to take a look um at this depiction of maternity on page 43. two years of marriage passed and still i was not pregnant remedies were prescribed everything from more rest to excrement of a virile ram rubbed across my belly. Did I tell you that was a little bit unforgettable? My memory is so bad, but I remembered... I I didn't remember it was a virile ram. That's probably important. Um, A little further down, a French doctor insisted that William need only lift my spirits, for a woman cannot get pregnant if she is always sad. I had taken to regular vomits, refused to come out of mourning, refused the doctor's tinctures, which gave me terrible gas. Yes, I was often quiet as the doctor had observed, but my husband chose not to worry. That summer I turned 24. I mean, God, this prose, there is so much happening here that is so delicious. So um, this is, this is the beginning, you know, we have a big space break. We have, it's the beginning of a chapter that is making this announcement, two years of marriage and I was not pregnant. Um, And then we have this kind of medieval, like, I mean not actually medieval more like enlightenment era um you know remedy of the ram excrement and then this idea that 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 she needs to it's somehow on her you know to get pregnant and that she needs to lift her spirits but what's so beautiful is the way that um the way that William her husband um is not worried and he he knows from the beginning even at court you know she does not back at court where he met her um, in Paris she was not kind of belle of the ball in fact everybody was a little bit like why is William um, Cavendish wanting to be you know with her? That kind of that kind of vibe, which is not great, um, but he he seems to see something in her that he values and thinks of her as an important thinker, and he really encourages her books and her writing. So you have this idea that he's not too concerned about the fact that she seems slightly sad. And then um, that summer, I turned twenty-four you're like, Oh my God, she's so young. I mean, of course, in that era, it was probably not quite as young as it sounds to me. Um, but, but wow, I mean, 24 years old to have been through all of this is really something. So we have the, um, the sentence that says that summer I turned 24 and then we have a new paragraph. Then William's son, Henry died or he nearly died. Okay, I love this so much. So this is doing so much work. Um, we are this is the kind of fragmentary stuff. Dutton could have written an entire you know scene about how they heard that maybe he had died or they were sure he was dead or whatever, and then they found out that he wasn't in fact dead. And all of that happens in in these very brief two sentences that that don't even take up a whole line on the page. But we also have this sense of of the importance, like, yes, it's sad for her, um, well, we presume that it's sad for both of them that she is not getting pregnant, but then we realize, in fact, that there is this real pressure on her to, to, to have an heir, to produce an heir. This was, of course, in an era Era, era era um this was in an era when lots and lots of children would die and so um lots of people die you would die of the flu or you would die of consumption or whatever it was that you were dying of um but this idea here of um uh, of needing to produce children you realize is in fact very important this guy is an important mark i have a friend who told me that who's like she's like a real royal kind of person she knows that stuff but marquess i think i would say Marquis. I think that's French um but anyway he's like this very important royal dude and he's got a lot of land and a lot of power and he needs to pass it along to a son and apparently two he's got two but one of them is sickly so you know she's got to produce some babies so on the next page on 44 and though Henry was only a second son I was under an ever-increasing pressure to produce And then we have this excellent uh, ending to this brief chapter about maternity and about the pressure that she is under. It's an entire paragraph unto itself. It's one brief sentence. Thus as a family, frustrated, gassy, impotent, poor, we wondered together at the turning of the stars. It's so beautiful. So there's a lot of concern with things, you know, celestial. There's a lot of looking at the stars, there's a lot of telescopes, there's a lot of looking at the moon. Um but but it's so beautiful because uh, when she says thus as a family, um she just means the two of them. So it's so beautiful because she's also signaling to us that the two of them, at least she herself, are very satisfied without children. She's very satisfied to be um, you know, in a family with him. Um Although she is frustrated and gassy, which I love the inclusion of gassy there, impotent. You know, impotent points to uh, points to uh, him in some way. I mean, is that true? I feel like I feel like I have that impression. Um, and, and of course, they have no money. It seems like they have a lot of money and they act like they have a lot of money. I mean, they have to have some because they're entertaining for the king, but they're really scraping stuff together in order to do that. But so th- she's saying thus, as a family, um, they're, they're gazing at the stars. They're watching the turning of the stars. You know, it's, it's alluding to days, passing seasons. It's just a beautiful way to convey to us that, yes, it's a difficult time, but in lots of ways, um, she has kind of larger, larger things she's thinking about. Okay, then we're going to look at page 71. So she now is with, um, with family friends and they have, uh, that are essentially her age, a little older than she is, and they have a daughter at this point who is uh, pregnant. To many healthy babies, I agreed. They're all drinking a toast. Yet I sank down into a private wordless rage, the fury of which I could not explain. I ordered the carriage, returned to the house. When William asked how the evening had gone, I snapped. Surely I had no time for such silly affectation. Only my work and my sick husband mattered. So you have this idea of, of, of her as being, as, as having, you know, feelings and not... Not being fully kind of um in touch with them, and certainly not wallowing in them, but you do have this sense of maternity as as important to her, and as something that she is you know it's 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 something that is bothering her when it is um happening so easily for other people, and importantly, um on page one twenty four we have a better sense of why in fact she would be frustrated. So this is when um her when her some of her manuscripts go missing. She wept for her missing manuscripts as she would have wept for an absent child. Long reconciled to childlessness, she worries instead about barrenness of the brain. I should have been much afflicted and accounted the loss of my 20 plays as the loss of 20 lives. So that was her verbatim. It was in quotation marks. So she, in fact, wrote that this idea of, of, um, of, of conflating here, her work and the idea of children is so important because she does, you know, she, she comes to understand that her work, in fact, is very important. Her work are her children. That is what she will produce. That is what will be her legacy. And, and she seems sort of um, n- not exactly reconciled to that, but well, yeah she literally just said that she was reconciled to that reconciled to childlessness so this is on page 124 we've got another uh what oh 26 pages left in the novel to 160 i'm going to let you check my math um but we have you know we're getting toward the end of the novel she's older william is sick but but, but it's very important to her this idea of of producing these uh these manuscripts producing work that is in fact her legacy and then um, on page 143, we have this kind of, um, you know, it's it's nice in lots of ways. In the very beginning of the book, when she's talking about her thinking rocks and her humming slippers or humming shoes, and, and um, she's writing Shakespeare and Ovid in with all of these sentient um, objects, you know, um, she mentions that Catherine, her sister, is in every one of, or I guess Catherine starred in five of the 14 books that she wrote when she was very young. Um, but so Catherine comes also at the end of the novel. So we have this really beautiful thing where both Catherine and Samuel Pepys are in the, the, the very beginning, and then both are also figures at the end. It's this very satisfying um, kind of bookend feel that we have in a, in a work that is otherwise, you know, fairly fragmentary and, and and sort of dreamy in lots of ways. It's a nice kind of anchor. So on page 143... She's visiting her sister Catherine and, you know, she spent so many long years in exile and, you know, her two of her brothers, one was crushed by his horse in Ireland and the other one was um, killed, was slaughtered by parliamentarians. So she's had a lot of loss um, and, and her one of her sisters died and then her mother died. So and the niece died. So she's had a lot of loss in her family. It's very important for her to be back with her sister Catherine. And in fact, she remarks that her sister Catherine looks very much like their mother. How pleasant is the glow of Catherine's little room. How nice this is, Margaret says, and takes a bite of cake. Then all at once, her sister's grandchildren arrive. How simple, how sweet it is. This is the Duchess of Newcastle, Catherine says. The children stare at her with bright, round eyes. Margaret shifts in the chair. My hat is too tall, she thinks. I love this so much. This is the kind of oblique, kind of strange writing that Dutton does where you know you you know what's happening here. I mean, it's simple, it's sweet when she sees the child these grandchildren of her sisters and and she can't she can't really let herself feel that. You know, at least this is my interpretation of it. I mean, everyone, this is the beauty of literature. Everyone can project their own thoughts and their own emotions and their own experience onto this text. But the idea of of, of being confronted with the beautiful um, sort of matrilineal idea here of these grandchildren coming in and 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 sort of reflecting on all she's lost, um, she immediately goes to this idea of her hat being too large. Uh, her hat is too tall. Um, this idea of, of of her hat as being too tall that that's an area where she normally feels very competent. She she's very sort of proud and 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 very courageous when it comes to all of her sartorial choices, all of her um, you know her clothing and her hats. And um, but I also love too this idea. There is kind of a phallic thing happening here. The idea of a very tall hat. So you have this idea of her as being. Um, you, you know, having, first of all, like, too big a head because she's so bright and she's really, like, dedicated a lot of her life to to her brain. But also this idea of a too tall hat really gets um, slightly phallic for us in a way that I think is just incredibly well done. But what's most important here, at least to me, is that the the, the sort of depiction of maternity throughout the book, it's subtle... We're definitely not being hit over the head with it, but it allows us to look at a bunch of different things. One is the strength of Margaret's mother um, and just sort of the reality of life with eight children in that era, even if you were, in fact, um, someone who had lots of land and privilege and money. And then we have the idea of um, some of these medical interventions that, that are really important in the book because they are signaling the presence of the enlightenment, but they're also just sort of barbaric and crazy. So you have this this sense of maternity, the idea of maternity is allowing us a glimpse of all of that. It also shows us this really beautiful bond that she, that Catherine and William have, Catherine, wow, that Margaret and William have together, this important way that he supports her and he loves her and he values her, even though she is not in fact, um, you know, providing him with more heirs. And then um, you have this very important idea of books being a substitute for children and her legacy. I mean, you can argue Margaret Cavendish is still very much in print. In fact, um, she has so many different uh, versions of The Blazing World, which is the, the book that she's kind of most famous for. It's this kind of fantastical, amazing, I haven't read all of it, but I've read pieces of it. Um, it just this fanciful, amazing thing that actually has a lot of science in it and a lot of sort of um, you know big important questions about the world and the universe and, and heat and cold and all of these different elements. Um, but, but, but that has never been, and, you know, it's, it, well, I'm sure it was out of print at some points, but it is in print and there are lots of different ways that you can read it. So in some ways, this idea of her children as a, or a legacy of literature um, is somewhat more compelling than Catherine. I don't even know Catherine's last name. Certainly don't know who her children are. Uh, okay. But but again, and then I love this idea of um, it giving uh, Dutton this ability to, to throw in a little, a little phallic symbol for us there with the hat. Okay. So that is our discussion of maternity. Um, it's actually a very good segue into this idea of professional ambition. So. I would argue, um, it was so funny when I was thinking this through, I was like, well, if she had been saddled with like six different children, you know, she might not have been able to write quite as well. And I realized that was totally me projecting because I think, um, if you are a woman, if you are a lady of her stature, you would have lots and lots of people helping you raise your six children. And you in fact would have plenty of time to do some writing. I'm not sure you would do as much writing. Um, I would imagine that even a woman in, you know, 1640, when she would be having children, would be very worried about her children and that a lot of her sort of psychic brain space would be taken up by her children. But then I realized probably the more important thing is that she probably would have died or at least the pregnancies would have been really gnarly. Like she would have been pregnant, you know, 12 times or something. And she would have been so, um, I don't know if she would have been sick or not, but she would have been so kind of, um, hijacked by maternity, just by the fatigue or the physical toll of having a lot of babies or whatever it is. So, um, one way or another, I think that for the writer who is Margaret Cavendish, it was probably better not to have, uh, not to have lots of children or maybe even one, even one baby could have, could have been the end of her. Uh, But we do have um, this this idea of maternity, which is so skillfully and subtly woven throughout the book is equally balanced, if not kind of overshadowed by a lot of Margaret's ambition. And it's a very clear sort of professional ambition. So we're going to look at page 69. This is when she has first written um, one of her more important books. This is not, the, um, this is not Poems and Fancies. Uh, it, I think this is the one about philosophy or physical philosophies. And um, this is about the reception of the book. It's not sort of taken up right, right away. And she is um, really wanting it to be very much in the limelight and is impatient for that. So she says, we're still in the first person part of the book. Some readers were cross a lady had published at all. Others that she had written of vacuums and war rather than poems of love. William ignored the talk. So I love this because he, you know, again, we have this idea of William as being, um, as being you know, supportive of her. And then down a little further, um, she, she sees that there is a letter um, from someone named uh, Huygens. And she says this, what's this? I managed to say here was a letter from Huygens who mattered. Huygens, who'd read my book. I could hardly hear the rest as William read aloud. Something, 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 vibrating strings, my book. So I love this. Um, she can't even take it in because this is someone who's important. The fact that he's even just writing about her book is enough for her at this stage. And I love this idea um, he's, that, that William is also reading this letter to her out loud and obviously with some enthusiasm because she's thinking it's a good thing, um, which really says a lot actually about William and, and the way he is supportive of her. So you have this beautiful, when she says this something, 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 vibrating strings, my book, exclamation mark. You have this sense of her as being so excited. Um, and, and, and it's just sort of like at this point, she, she can't really articulate what it is. It's just, it's this, it's this beautiful um, way of sharing her excitement and how overwhelming it was um, in, in this very personal and intimate and, and, and lovely way. In the beginning, um, when we were talking about the title, she had that line about how she couldn't be Henry V or Charles II, but she endeavored to be Margaret the First. I mean, that is a, um, that's a lot of your ambition right there. And then um, we have a little bit further down on that same page where she makes this declaration, which is actually fairly late in the book. It's on page 121. So here she's talking about the blazing world, which is in many ways her masterpiece. This is the book that people still read. And she wishes it 1,000 or 10,000 million readers, nay, that their number be infinite. The blazing world with its blazing sky and river of liquid crystal, it's gowns of alien star stone. It's talking bears and spiders. William has told her it is her finest work." So again, we have this really delightful um, supporting of William, which is, which is great, but more importantly than that, we have this idea that she really believes, in fact, that her work should have, um, I, I appreciate the math here, what she's saying here is um, 10,000 million readers. That's, that's a number I would pull out too. I'd like ten thousand million readers for my book, please. So, but you have this beautiful sense of her ambition and and her it's sort of unbridled and and really well articulated. Okay, on one uh, one thirty one, you'll recall that there was a woman earlier who was pregnant and um, that that she was the daughter of some friends of theirs. And that woman, it turns out, ends up being a traitor in a different way. Not only did she easily get pregnant um, and and bring some sort of uh, uncontrollable and unfathomable rage to margaret but here she is um, in fact criticizing margaret never did i see a woman so full of herself countered mary so amazingly vain and ambitious um then down at the bottom of that same paragraph mary evelyn has called her masculine and vain so all of these things together ambitious masculine vain um uh you know, full of herself. All of these sorts of things are are, are derogatory terms for an ambition and, and and sort of a a drive that Margaret uh, should be, in fact, very very proud of. Then down a little further, and this is this is tough. This is a bit of a crusher here that we're coming across because this is William speaking. This is her husband. The truth is, William suddenly says, "Women should never speak more than to ask rational questions." or to give a discreet answer to a question asked of them. They ought, he wipes his mouth, to be sparing of speech, especially in company of men. To which surprising rejoinder Margaret sits in silence, her throat blocked up with bread. So uh, the reader is quite surprised here, and Margaret is quite surprised here. But you do get a sense, um, this is after she did show up at his big play. Um, you know, he decided to write a play, and it um, not only did she show up in a gown that had her breasts bared, so she definitely stole the show, but then after the play, everybody assumed that she wrote it, which was ironic because of course, originally, when she was writing, everyone thought that he was actually the person who was writing all of her work. And then when he published a play, everyone assumed in fact that it was Margaret who had written William's work. So, um, you know, I think we, through through the bulk of the text, we have William is incredibly supportive. It seems like he's maybe reached the end of his tether here a little. He's just like maybe been pushed a bit too far um, or maybe just needs to vent a little bit uh, with Margaret. So a few readers were noticing that that when the narration shifted uh, to the third person, that Margaret seems just a little bit less likable, uh, a little less sympathetic. And I think part of it is that she does start to become ambitious in a way uh, that, and attention-seeking, in a way that, that does make her a little bit less likable, which is fine. You know, she's a rounded character. We like lots of things about her, and there are things that we don't like as much. This is one of the things we don't like as much. On page 138. At dinner tomorrow, Margaret says, I will be entirely pleasant, you will see. I will limit my conversation to three topics, rain, Chinese, silk, and the stage. But the following afternoon, William hears her tell their guests that if the schools do not retire Aristotle and read Margaret, Duchess of Newcastle, they do her wrong and deserve to be abolished. So, I mean, that's kind of bold. Like, to say that they need to toss out Aristotle and start reading you instead is, like, kind of, it's just not great. It's not a great look for her. Um, and this idea that if they don't do that, they should be abolished. I mean, you, you get a sense of, it, it feels a little bit like a temper tantrum. It also feels really um, self-aggrandizing. I mean, I, I don't know enough about her scientific stuff and Aristotle's, but, you know, it seems tricky. It seems hard to think that you should throw out Aristotle and uh, get Duchess of N- Newcastle in instead. Okay. 146. So, you know, this, 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 um, this discussion of her ambition, it sort of cuts both ways. At some points, it, um, it becomes difficult for her and for William. And even as the reader, sometimes you're like, wait, really? Aristotle? Hmm. Okay. Um, here on page 146 at dinner and she really wants to hear about her book. And early on, um, a a very important, it's George Berkeley actually is a very important philosopher. And he says, oh, you know, we were talking about your book last night at the Royal Society. That was me paraphrasing. That's not exactly what Berkeley said. Um, and, And then the conversation moves on to something else and she keeps trying to bring it back to her book. So at the end of a relatively lengthy paragraph of other people talking about different things, Margaret says this. Pardon me, says Margaret, and everyone turns. Forgive me, she says, but we had been speaking, that is, Sir George had been speaking of my recent book, of comments made at the Royal Society. You see, she says, as everyone watches, I have lately felt a great desire, that is, I would very much like to present my ideas. I would like to speak to the Royal Society. I would like to be invited." So this I really like, um, she wants to hear about her book, but then, and, and the reader is expecting her to be like, wait, we were talking about my book. Let's get back to that topic. And she does a little bit of that, but mostly what she says there is that she in fact wants to be one of the people who can be at the Royal Society with all of these important thinkers. So Margaret does in fact end up going into the Royal Society and, and it's a real, um, you know, sort of crown jewel, jewel in her crown. I think that's what we say. Um, she's not remember she's not the queen but if she were it would be a jewel in her crown um you know she's slightly retiring when she's there she's not super outspoken but she's never super outspoken but it's very important for her to be included uh, at least in some way in this incredibly male bastion of of science and inquiry and enlightenment so um her ambition you know it's uh I like the portrayal of it because again, we see lots of different facets of her and her life and William through the lens of this ambition, but it's also very important to recognize um, you know, that, that she was someone who was a little self-promoting and someone who was very confident and someone who was daring and did not care what other people thought of her. I mean, it's kind of a recipe really for like getting ahead in the world as a creative person. Okay, so I wanna close by uh, taking a look at the very end of the novel. They are buried together in Westminster Abbey. The inscription above their bodies reads, here lies the loyal Duke of Newcastle and his Duchess, his second wife, by whom he had no issue. This Duchess was a wise, witty, and learned lady, which her many books do well testify. She was a most virtuous and loving and careful wife and was with her Lord all the time of his banishment and miseries. And when he came home, never parted from him in his solitary retirement so i love this because much like uh, how margaret eclipsed all of the other people that dutton was going to write about she really does kind of eclipse her husband uh, william here at the end and it's it's very deserved in lots of ways i mean she really was margaret the first in the sense that you know she 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 really uh, lived by the pen, you know, she was a prolific writer and, and, and her work still, you know, stands up today. And she was writing at a time when women were not educated. I mean, the spelling is so amazing throughout the book because when it is verbatim from her from her work, you know, you see that like spelling was barely even standardized for anyone, and certainly not for a woman who uh, was relatively uneducated. But this drive in her to write that she had had since she was a young child, and this incredible imagination really uh, came together at this unique moment when, you know, enlightenment thinking was doing some of that same stuff. You know, you had to have a lot of imagination and a huge amount of curiosity. And she took all of that. And, you know, besides the fact that she was exiled and that she was living in these crazy places in the middle of the 1700s and nothing was comfortable. And she was having to undergo all of these terrible medical treatments, you know, because she was infertile. Um you she was someone who really, really was a singular and incredibly accomplished and and driven and bright and ambitious and, and just oh, creative and artistic, just an absolute um, like an incredible, incredible person, incredible human being. So I really appreciate the ending and this idea of them being in Westminster Abbey, the idea of them being together. But really, really, I love this idea of how she does seem to eclipse him. And you get the sense that, you know, that'd be kind of okay with William too. Except for that one little outburst. So... I want to thank you for joining me uh, in this deep dive into Daniel Dutton's Amazing Margaret the First. It is a book I love, and I was so happy to have an excuse to dive back in. And again, I think it was a very interesting way to look at some of the um, revisioning that we are having where the Enlightenment is concerned these days, and just to think a bit more um, about the role of women and about the role of, of writers and how you know we have people like Daniel Dutton who are reading people from. The middle of last century, that being Virginia Woolf, who are sort of casting all the way back 300 years before to the middle of the 17th century. And we're having this writing that is kind of resurrected and is repurposed in this absolutely beautiful, slim, poetic, lyrical, beautiful novel. So I hope that this has been interesting for you and that you've gotten um, an even better sense uh, of of why this book is so great and um, head back to the Fox page, find something else to read and another lecture to listen to and happy reading.